The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy, sitting in this week in the upholstered leather armchair normally occupied by the sculpted buttocks of Hugh Linehan. Joining me this morning are my colleagues on the political staff, Mr Harry McGee. Bonjour, Harry. Bonjour, Pat. Comment ça va? And Ms Jennifer Bray. Assalamu alaikum, Jennifer. <laughs> Good morning. Later, we'll be talking about the continuing political pressure on the government on the housing issue following a Sinn Féin private member's motion last night ahead of the so-called Raise the Roof demonstration in Dublin this Saturday. But first, I want to discuss another issue that has jumped onto the news agenda in recent days following a number of protests in the East Wall area of Dublin against the relocating of about 100 asylum seekers to a converted office building there. Now, some of those who are protesting say that they're not directing their protests at the asylum seekers, but instead at the government who placed the people in the area without any prior consultation. But several politicians, including local TDs and the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman, have warned that far-right elements are using the local unease to further their political agenda. Jennifer, I know you're writing a piece uh, about this for Saturday's paper. What's your reporting telling you so far about it? Yeah, I think the the interesting thing, so obviously what happened over the last couple of days is that we've seen demonstrations in Dublin's East Wall, um, two demonstrations at least, I know there was a third plan that had been called off now, uh, at least until the end of the week. And this followed the arrival of um, dozens of men, effectively single men, um, who were international protection applicants um, and they were being housed or they are being housed in an old ESB building. Now, my understanding is that the the building is actually split into some family usage and then there are single men separately on a different floor. Um, but the, the protests were effectively sparked by that and what community leaders felt was a lack of consultation on the move from the Department of Children, uh, who are responsible for housing people at this time, uh, and for that humanitarian response from the government. Um, and, you know, what we saw over the last couple of days, we have people like Fine Gael councillor Ray McAdam coming out and saying that there was a vacuum effectively and that when you have a vacuum, 
all kinds of information effectively is bandied about um, and it can be false and it can be totally untrue and it can be incendiary, um, but it can be perceived to be true. And that is the problem. And, you know, I was watching, I wasn't actually at the protest myself, but there was a, a, a good few videos of it. And I was watching kind of how it played out. And, and I think there were a core group of, of, of residents who were very keen to say that this is a multicultural area around Dublin's East Wall and they outlined all of the different areas in which, you know, they talked about the owner of the chip shop, um, you know, the owner of the laundrette, all the different local businesses. But then there was another group, effectively, and, you know, what they were saying, and I, I, I you know, I won't repeat it, but it was it, it was quite racist in tone. Um, it was very much, you know, get out of our country, get out of our city, get out of our community. Um, and I think it's that language, particularly, that has kind of alarmed politicians in recent days. So what I'm kind of setting out to do for the piece this weekend is to look at um, how prevalent of an issue is this around the country in terms of tensions within communities, firstly. Um, secondly, you know, how can this be addressed? Uh, and, and, and thirdly, what work is underway already? And I think that the first issue, it's, it probably comes as no surprise to anybody to learn that what I have discovered is that it's these tensions are simmering in communities all across the country. Yeah, it's not just East Wall, right? No, it's not. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll have case studies of, of issues in Cork, in Meath, in Mayo, and they're all different issues. You know, there's one issue that I'll be highlighting and it is about co-location of refugees on a educational site, uh, effectively a school, um, and concerns the parents are raising that there's been no um, prior consultation um, and that that's one of the issues. Um, and then we've seen it in other communities that have already been well covered, like Kill. And the one thing that I, I, I'm coming across in its early doors uh, in, in the work yet, but one thing I am really coming across is people saying that the Department of Children are not consulting with the local communities, that what they're doing is people are kind of arriving and there's no kind of prior discussion about how the local services in the area such as GP services, um, hospitals, um, any public services, effectively, um, how they will cope. And it's it's a really interesting one because Roderick O'Gorman was up at a committee yesterday in the in the Dáil and he was kind of asked about this and he said, well, we don't have the time, effectively. He said, we don't have time to always, you know, have a full lengthy consultation. Um, and there were questions asked about him as well about vetting. This is something that came up at that protest in the East Wall. And his response effectively was, we don't vet, um, you know, refugees in this way. And this hasn't been the case previously. Um, and I've kind of been digging around, talking to people in government, what kind of consultation would work? One politician suggested to me that what might work would be setting up a community fora where before people come in, people can have these conversations. But one senior government figure rejected this out of hand to me last night and said, no, what are we going to have? Like a situation where people you know, get to decide an application and then reject them. Isn't this precisely the difficulty that mm. that is faced, that various communities, and you hear it uh, again from some of the people in East Wall, that they're decrying the lack of consultation. But is there, I wonder, a, a fear in government that if an in the Department of Children, which is, you know, responsible for organising this, that if they flag up that a group of asylum seekers or refugees are to come to any given community in advance mm. and seek to consult that people won't want to receive them. Is that the, is that a fear? Yeah, that, I think that's exactly it. Um, one 
politician who would be quite in the know about this, but was speaking on background to me, said that in their experience kind of looking at the cases that they say the vast majority of international protection applicants are young, single men with brown or black skin. Um, and the question they were asking, you know, is any community going to welcome them in their hundreds if they're giving, you know, weeks notice? And the fact that these protests was, was bring up anywhere. And the other thing I will say is that I noticed just from talking to politicians, uh, most of my background so far is that they're all terrified of saying anything that could come across as a dog whistle, which is totally understandable because every pretty much every mainstream party has been completely, you know, resolute in their uh, political opinions, which is that we are, you know, an open country, a welcoming country. We really want to do our bit in terms of the humanitarian response. We have an international obligation as well. Um, and there's no question around that. I think the question is politicians are most afraid to say, in my experience so far from talking to them, that there's an issue in my local community. And here's the legitimate concerns that people have. But I don't want to say this publicly in case I get accused of dog whistle politics. And that's fair enough. Um, but I think really politicians are going to have to grasp the nettle because one thing stuck out for me yesterday, what Roderick O'Gorman said, he said that if we didn't have hotel accommodation that we do have now, which will likely expire by next spring when um, the tourist season starts, he said, if we didn't have that, we would have run out of space in March and we would have had to say We've no space and would have actually reneged on our international commitments. And that's going to happen next spring. There's a big problem coming down the line is what I'm saying. And the government needs to put in place, I think, um, some kind of community for us, some kind of local representative group, some kind of outreach, whether that be, like I was mentioning, the co-location with the school, you know, uh, via the school, whatever location it may be, some kind of process that doesn't involve people being able to veto anybody. Of course not. But it does involve people being able to say, OK, how's this going to work with the GP? How's this going to work with the hospital? Because if they don't, then what you'll see is that vacuum being filled again with rhetoric that is completely unacceptable. Harry, I mean, I think it's important to say that in general, Ukrainians have been welcomed here in communities across the country. I mean, if you see our front page pick today of three families who are living in mobile homes that were provided for them by small, very small community in uh, in, in County Offaly. And, and they have been arriving in unprecedented numbers, nearly 60,000 of them uh, so far. But there is a public concern about the numbers arriving. The most recent Irish Times poll, you know, found that there was a strong desire to support Ukraine. But, you know, 60 percent of voters were concerned that there was too many refugees are coming here. And, and, and more than half of voters disagreed that Ireland should continue to accept uh, refugees from Ukraine without, uh, without any heed to the numbers. So, you know, I think there is a, a public concern here, uh, you know, that it serves nobody to, to ignore. And I, I wonder actually if that concern isn't alighting so much on Ukrainians, but on asylum seekers from from other countries. Jade Wilson had a piece in yesterday's paper in which he spoke to some Afghan women who came here and and they spoke about a two tier system, one tier for Ukrainians and and another for everybody else, which is kind of true, isn't it? Yes, uh, it is. I think in the first instance, in terms of public sentiment, people will be all for something uh, when the issue is abstract. But when it becomes proximate to their own lives, Often, not always, uh, perhaps sometimes rather than often, uh, the disposition uh, will change. And we've seen a couple of instances of it in the past few weeks uh, uh, and few months indeed uh, in, in County Kildare. 
in uh, County Mayo and now in the East Wall in um, Dublin. And uh, you, you said that there, there, are, there are two categories of uh, people coming in. There are Ukrainian refugees who are uh, given refugee status uh, without having to go through a process. And then you have a separate group who come from places other than Ukraine. These are people who we would know as asylum seekers who are seeking international uh, protection. And they have also come in in unprecedented numbers during the course of 2022. We're going to have the highest number of people seeking international protection since records began back in the late 1990s when the phenomenon first started. I think we'll probably have 13 or 14,000 by the end of 2022. They're coming in on top of an estimated 55,000 Ukrainians who are seeking accommodation, who haven't been accommodated uh, by people they know from their homeland. It's putting enormous pressure on a system that's already buckling under uh, the weight. We have 11,000 people who are officially classified as homeless at, at present. So the system is under considerable strain. And I must say, I feel great sympathy for Roderick O'Gorman. You know, people arrive, they have to house them. You know, they don't have time to go through a, an elongated consultation process with local communities because the choice they have is, you know, find accommodation or have these people sleep on the streets or else sleep on the floor of uh, of Dublin Airport or, or wherever. And we also saw earlier on the summer those scenes from the Red Cow in uh, uh, the Red Cow Hotel uh, where hundreds of people were forced to sleep on the floor. And there is, I think, isn't it worth kind of pointing out that there is an international obligation that is codified in law to accept people who claim asylum here. So it, it's not the case. And you can see this in the UK at the moment. It's, it, it's not the case the government is legally entitled to turn anybody back. They must accept their claim for asylum and process it. Now, many of the claims may subsequently be found not to be valid, particularly when people are arriving from, you know, what the EU would describe as safe countries like, uh, you know, Albania or Georgia, places uh, uh, or places like that. But the processing of those claims takes an awful long time and the backlog keeps uh, keeps building up. Essentially, I suppose the the asylum process is not equipped to handle the numbers of people that are coming in. And so long as that is the case, you're going to have the backlog of, of people who are awaiting judgment on their claims building up and building up. The process has been a dog's dinner for a generation ever since it's begun. It's a complete and utter mess and it's not fit for purpose. And this is one of the reasons that might be a factor in some of the resentment that we're seeing amongst uh, the public. Essentially, when a person claims asylum in Ireland, by the time a, a final determination is made, it could be 10 years from the moment they arrive in Ireland when all the appeal process is exhausted. By that time, they've established links in this country. They might have kids. The kids are going to school. It would be manifestly unjust at that stage just to chuck them out of the, the, the country. And that, that's, that, that, that reflects back on the process itself. It's very slow. There are layers and layers of appeal. And even when a deportation order is issued, 
uh, a process begins where a person can try to revoke the deportation order. And that can also take many years. So if you look at PQs, for example, uh, you'll see TDs. Bernard Durkin in Kildare is, is one person who, who has, who has um, issued loads of PQs on behalf of those uh, fighting deportation. Some of those deportation orders have been made as far back as 2007-2008. Uh, so the, the system itself is manifestly not fit for purpose at present. And uh, when you talk about people coming in, seeking international protection, you get people from war-torn countries. And I'm sure that in the next couple of years, we're going to see people coming in from Russia uh, once this war has, has come to an end. And they will have valid claims. But you do uh, see people coming in from countries uh, where, you know, there aren't those kind of issues in relation to persecution, to oppression, uh, to threats to their personal safety. For example, a fifth of those who are seeking international protection uh, at present in Ireland come from Georgia. I mean, Georgia is an applicant country for the European Union. And Georgia is seen as a country uh, which is regarded internationally as safe. It's not a perfect country by any means, uh, but it's not, uh, wouldn't be in the, um, uh, in the realm of, say, Syria or Afghanistan or Ukraine or other countries uh, which are going through the ringer uh, at present. And the difficulty is that once uh, people come in uh, and once the determination process begins, it just takes too long. And if it takes too long, it, it, it lacks justice because there isn't a, a fairness and equity to it, you know, in terms of making an objective determination. And I just have statistics in front of me here in relation to deportation orders. Since 2004, uh, there have been 20,965 uh, issued. That's about 2,000 per annum. Uh, but only 4,657 have been actually affected. This is relation to, to adults. So that's about a quarter, only a quarter of deportation orders uh, are actually implemented but actually, the actual physical deportation of people is, is, is of a, as I understand it, is a, is a much lower rate. The assumption is that people just return themselves or go to a different country. Yeah, yeah it's 200 per annum, which is very low in the context of all those who have um, arrived into Ireland seeking international protection uh, over uh, that time. And I mean, essentially, what, what needs to be done is that we need to have a very clear, uh, precise, transparent uh, process in relation to how we handle this issue so that people will know that it's foreseeable, it's predictable uh, and will know that the, 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 the final determination will be issued within a finite period of time. I think Helen McEntee, in fairness to her, as Minister for Justice, has tried uh, to, uh, to expedite uh, the process uh, since it's resumed uh, after COVID, but it's still a long way short of being an effective system. I mean, Harry, some people are just uncomfortable with the whole idea of deporting people out of the country. But it seems to me it's some level of refusals of asylum claims and subsequent deportation orders. If you don't do that, you don't really have an immigration system. No, you? I mean, you either you, you make a policy decision as to whether you have an open door policy or whether you um, are going to have a, a, an immigration system where you put limits on the number of people who are coming in. And I just think the important thing is that that system is clear 
and it's transparent to people and people know exactly what the what the system is so that when people are deported, there are just and legitimate reasons why that that has been happening. I mean, there's an argument that if we were to uh, have an open door policy, it would become quickly unsustainable because if you're not controlling the numbers, you're running into problems in relation to finding accommodation for people, uh, trying to place people in community, all of the problems. I mean, it's supercharged at the moment because we're in a crisis. But but uh, on a day-to-day basis, if you if Ukraine hadn't happened this year, on a day-to-day basis, there are still flashpoints, there are still difficulties, uh, and there are, are still big problems with trying to, to, to accommodate people and trying to integrate people into communities around the country. And we've seen that coming up at various points uh, over the past few years. I don't want to overstate that because I think it's something that, that reflects back on the process rather than on public uh, sentiment. Public sentiment on the whole has been very, very positive. And I think one of the things uh, about our political system, and we give out about our political system a lot and about our political parties, is our political parties have in the main not risen to the bait and started coming out with sloganeering or the type of racism that we have and 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 xenophobia that we have seen in in other countries. I, I think that might not last. I think we have seen the rise of anti-immigrant parties in most other European states. And I don't think that we are magically immune from that. And I think over the next couple of years, we would probably begin to see a nascent anti-immigrant movement or, or party take hold and command, you know, initially small degrees of, of public support. But as time goes by, as has happened in other European states, I think that uh, that party or that movement uh, will begin to attract more attention. Jen, there was a piece in this morning's paper by uh, by Catherine Day, who's the former top civil servant in the European Commission, and uh, uh, but has moved on to even greater things now. She's a governor of the Irish Times Trust, which, of course, uh, which uh, is the ultimate controlling body of um, of the Irish Times. But she managed to squeeze in an op-ed uh, into this morning's paper, in, in, in which she's also, one of the roles she fulfills at the moment is as head of an expert group, which is advising Roderick O'Gorman, uh, the Minister for Children and Integration, uh, on this. And she said in the piece that, you know, that she has, she and her colleagues in the expert group have advised um, Roderick O'Gorman that he's going to have to build uh, very quickly. In fact, she recommended um, a sort of suspension of the Planning Act under emergency legislation to build six reception centres for refugees around the country and thousands of um, thousands of, of quick-build homes that will be needed for uh, for refugees in the very near future, saying many of them could be up and running uh, by the, the the middle of next year. She's also recommending uh, that the, that there's a new agency set up to uh, to handle uh, the refugee and asylum claims and to be responsible for uh, for their welfare uh, while their claims are being processed. And it it kind of feels really that we're on the cusp of a step change with regard to this issue in not just government business, but in politics here as a whole, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Lots to address there. I read the piece, really super interesting piece for a number of different reasons. You know, all of these things are tied in together, obviously, you know, the housing crisis, um, the accommodation crisis for incoming refugees and international um, protection applicants, the issue in direct provision centres, 
um, and the backlog that Harry talked about, people waiting up to 10 years. All these things are interlinked in one way or the other. And I think what we'll see not only is the focus, you know, the short term focus, which we've seen from the Department of Children and wider government in housing refugees who are fleeing war. But the longer term question of this clearly, I think when it began, the war began, there was almost a belief or a feeling that this was for six or nine months or whatever. And that was reflected in the fact that when householders were asked, you know, to pledge their private accommodation, that those pledges were for six months. That was kind of the short term thought at the time. But obviously now we know this is a long term war. This will be a long term game. And many of the people who have come here will probably stay here. So there's a whole kind of piece of the puzzle there. And, and, and Catherine Day's piece today, you know, what I was aware of was that the government has a white paper. Um, Roderick O'Gorman, um, we, he wasn't that long in the job when he finalised it and published it. And effectively what they want to do is to end direct provision by 2024. And they want to reduce down the amount of time that people wait uh, as, as part of that. But because of the sheer numbers who've arrived into the country, um, like it looks like we will have to accommodate, I think, uh, somewhere around 55,000 by the end of the year. Obviously, that has completely blown the government's plans out of the water. So what they did was they brought in this expert group. This expert group gave an options paper to tell them, OK, you know, this is a completely different context in which we which we originally published this report. How do we achieve these goals or are these goals achievable at all? Um, I wasn't aware that Catherine Day was 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 on the group or the former ambassador to the United Nations, David Donoghue, and the lecturer, Lorcan Sir. And in her piece today, Catherine is basically outlining some of the recommendations, like you said, that they've made to government uh, to kind of really ramp this up and, and, and to try and hold true to those things that they, they pledged in that white paper. And I think that the headline thing that she's talking about is what she's recommending, what the group are recommending, is that the state use emergency powers and emergency legislation. They'll build six reception and integration centres uh, on state-owned land. Um, she points out that there's, you know, 2,000 hectares of, of that is actually already zoned for residential use. Two of them, she's saying, should be built by the end of May 2023 and four more by the end of uh, 2023. And that this should accommodate somewhere between 3,000 and 4,500 people. And it could be modular or rapid build. And, that, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the modular builds. They're quite high quality. They're a good B or a rating. They have a lifespan of between 50 to 60 years. They're a good investment for the state um, in, in comparison to other options. So I think that that they were her headline uh, uh, recommendations. But just to your wider point then, and Harry's point as well, about this being a feature of politics long term, it is so interesting now to 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 look at the situation where we've talked for so many years about the lack of a strong or really cogent far-right movement in Irish politics. There's been a lot of conversation, we've talked on this podcast before, about how some people have presumed that some of that kind of, I use I used the word nationalist, it's probably the wrong word to use, but that kind of... Parts of it are nationalist, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, there's, people have different ways of in, into interpreting that word. But, you know, uh, that Sinn Féin had mopped up that vote, effectively, or that those voters had kind of gravitated there and that's why we hadn't seen it. And actually, one of the really interesting things about that protest in East Wall was there was a poster of Mary Lou MacDonald. It had been defaced, so instead of saying working for your community, I think it said not working for your community. It was hoisted up at the very front and, you know, a large swathe of the crowd booed her and, you know, they, there were personal comments about her. Um, and, you know, basically I, it was, I heard from one of the videos, two people talking about how Sinn Féin were doing nothing for the area. And I think it, it, it's going to be really interesting to see because Sinn Féin on the national stage are quite clear. 
when there was news of a councillor who'd talked about, I think it was in Roscommon, about the area being used as a dumping ground, I think was the phrase he used, um, for refugees. Uh, Kathleen Funchen went on The Week in Politics and she couldn't have been clearer. She said very clearly, there is absolutely no place for this in this party. Owen O'Brien yesterday said on Morning Ireland, you know, he said, if you want to protest, don't protest vulnerable people, protest the government, not this, basically. Basically, don't be protesting in, in the in the manner that has happened. And I think that Sinn Féin are making it publicly clear this is not a warm house for those kind of views. So where did, where where does that kind of sentiment go? And I think what the question politicians are asking themselves now is, what happens next year? Does this become does this become a thing? Basically, can I just add just a just a quick uh, grace note to that? Just in relation to Sinn Féin, some of Sinn Féin's support certainly uh, would be people who uh, would uh, be certainly uh, on those protests. And in fairness to Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin has never uh, promulgated that. In fact, it has argued uh, the opposite. But I think there is a, there might be a growing disconnect uh, between Sinn Féin and that particular cohort of its supporters who um, who, who might be uh, suspicious of people coming into their areas. Unfortunately, as with most other things in life here in Ireland, as in elsewhere, uh, when a, a social issue like this arises and a local community is asked uh, to take on a, a burden, uh, the community that's asked to take on the bur- burden is usually a working class community or a poorer community. You see very little of this happening uh, with with immigrants, with asylum seekers, uh, with travellers, uh, with any other kind of excluded or vulnerable vulnerable group happening in middle class areas of our uh, of our cities. Yeah, it's 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 worth pointing out. I think that the northeast inner city uh, has the highest portion of foreign-born people uh, in the country by some distance, as I understand it. And Blanchardstown as well, Dublin fifteen as well is another place with a with a huge number of of people who who haven't been born in Ireland. When you go beyond Blanchardstown to the new suburbs like Hainault, further out there on, along the road from Blanchardstown to the uh, edges of County Meath, uh, you'll find that in a lot of those new communities most of the parents certainly have not been born in Ireland. There's one final point on this that I want to raise as well, uh, Harry, and it's that climate change is going to, over the coming years, coming decades, is going to mean that the pressures on countries in Europe from asylum seekers, immigration, climate refugees, call them what you want, is going to exacerbate and very possibly very significantly. So we need a system to uh, to deal with this, which we, we really don't have yet. No, and actually I was on a trip to Africa with uh, then Taoiseach and soon to be Taoiseach Leo Varadkar in early 2000. And he talked about the possibility of over the next century, uh, a mass migration of uh, up to a billion people uh, leaving Africa to seek better lives in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in in Europe. And he was talking about the need to have mechanisms to ensure that life in Africa is sufficiently of sufficient quality to ensure that doesn't happen. But with the threat of climate change, and if, if the things that are predicted in relation to climate change do uh, eventuate, there is inevitably going to be a very big movement of people, and we've seen it already. We've seen the the desperate people who've tried to go across the Mediterranean over the past number of years, and the many thousands of people who have perished during that relatively 
short trip. Yeah, Sally Hayden's book, My Fourth Time We Drowned. Anyone who wants a picture of what of of that whole effort to get from uh, from parts of North Africa through Libya to the EU and the EU's behaviour uh, on that uh, on that front. Anyone who wants a picture of that should should read that book. Africa has, you know, economically is doing much better than it was even 20 years ago. And technology has helped Africa and Chinese money, indeed. I don't know if the Chinese money might be running out now, but if anyone who goes to Africa will see that that development has taken place at a dizzying rate in the past uh, 20 uh, years and, you know, that, that people's economic loss has improved. But there's still a huge, significant gap between the average per capita income in across Africa, with a couple of exceptions like Botswana, perhaps South yeah. Afri- Africa, uh, uh, and um, the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, it's a colossal uh, gap, and there's very, it's very, it's very, it's very unlikely that that's going to be bridged to a significant extent over the next fifty to hundred years. No, for the foreseeable future, millions of people are going to want to come to Europe, and a lot of European countries don't want that. And climate change will accelerate that process. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Anyway, look, we leave that um, we leave that there for now. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about housing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And you're welcome back. Uh, Last night, the Dáil debated yet another motion on housing, this time a Sinn Féin motion seeking to declare a housing emergency. And this is in advance of the so-called Raise the Roof demonstration on Saturday, which is being supported by other opposition parties, NGOs, trade unions, campaigning groups and so on. Harry, you attended an event on the Plinth and Leinster House yesterday about this. What were opposition TDs saying? They were praising Darrow Bryan and saying, what a good job he has done. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say they were. They were saying he has miraculously turned the situation around no, they were um, they were saying that Darrell O'Brien two weeks ago had the temerity to say there wasn't a housing uh, emergency. So the, the whole name of the game behind the private members motion in the Doyle last night uh, was to force the government to accept there was indeed or there is indeed a housing emergency. So we had representatives of all uh, the main opposition parties plus independents, mainly drawn from the West, on the plinth uh, yesterday, uh, going through the uh, current sad and perhaps not as good as one would have hoped uh, statistics uh, in relation to housing. So again, and for the umpteenth year, uh, we have seen house prices rise this year. Uh, there was a daft.ie um, survey that was published yesterday morning, uh, which showed that rents are again increasing uh, this year. In addition to that, uh, there was a, a €4 billion euro budget allocated uh, to uh, housing this year uh, in an effort to, to resolve the issue. And the opposition were able to say that half a billion 
euro of the money that was earmarked uh, for social and affordable housing has remained unspent uh, this year. So I, I expect that with the um, combined forces of all the opposition parties, plus the trades unions, um, I, I think that uh, there will be a very large turnout uh, for that march on Saturday. And there's another statistic as well, uh, which unfortunately is not a good statistic, uh, and that is that the number of homeless people has continued to increase as well. I think it's, a, it's 11,000 or thereabouts at present, as bad really as ever it has been. Jen, would declaring a housing emergency actually mean anything? I don't think declaring a housing emergency would mean that we see an extra, you know, 5,000 houses being built before the end of the year or anything like that. So it's it's not really that. I think what it would would do would be it's a signal of intent or it's a message from the government, I think, to people who are obviously naturally and rightfully very critical of the government's housing policies, given, you know, where we are at the moment. It will I think it would be a signal to the electorate that they do believe that it is an item of the utmost seriousness and that they're willing to, I suppose, be self-critical in a way. So it's not, I don't think it's it's something that would necessarily solve the problem. It wouldn't solve the problem overnight. Nothing, there is no silver bullet. But I think it would be a signal of intent to the electorate. But what Michal Martin said in the doll yesterday was that Sinn Féin are deliberately using this term housing emergency, that they've latched onto it in the last couple of weeks because Dara O'Brien was on Virgin Media and he basically refused to say that it was a housing emergency. They've now latched onto this. That's what their motion was about. He said he called it a social emergency uh, when they launched the government's housing for all plan. Um, I think what would be better, again, would be an actual honest conversation from people on government benches about what how many houses actually need to be built. Because we know they're saying they're on target this year. We know they're saying that what we need is 33,000, but they're, they have their own internal analysis, which shows that actually... 40,000 homes, new homes, need to be built a year to meet that demand. Are they the targets that we should have set? And that's just to keep up with demand. I mean, I suppose there's a a parallel, you know, with the numbers of asylum seekers arriving every year. If you don't process the numbers that arrive every year, then a backlog continues to build up. So it is with housing. If your demand for housing is, you know, 50,000 or 40,000 a year and you're only building 25, then you can see how how demand, the backlog of demand builds up. Yeah, exactly. And there's another issue as well that goes along with that, which is the capacity within the sector. So it's construction capacity. Um, I think the government's argument is that there are around 20,000 more people working in, in the construction sector now. Many of those are in the residential uh, area and that, that that's something that they're trying to... Because there's, there's also... Um, competition as well. You know, the government have also set really ambitious climate targets and a lot of that will be delivered through retrofitting. A lot of the skills for retrofitting come from people who will be in the industry that would necessarily actually also be needed to build homes. And then conversely, bizarrely, there's also figures to show if the government do ramp up their housing output to 40,000, which is not going to happen, but if they did, that that's actually detrimental to their climate targets because of the emissions. It's it's a tricky, tricky one. But I think um, what we'll see is exactly what we've seen. This is Sinn Féin's bread and butter. We'll have another two and a half years of this if we do get to an election in 2025. We'll have a good litmus test of how that message is landing in the local elections. That's the next big test for Sinn Féin. They didn't have a great one the last time around. Um, but I think the, pr- the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? The Yes, the figures will be met this year. 
But what are they? Are they the social and affordable targets or are they privately de- delivered houses? They're privately delivered houses. And house prices, house prices are still going up, rents are still going up. Harry, is there any way out of the political downside of this for the government? Or is this just, is this just baked in now? It's baked in. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the, you just drizzled with, with figures about completions and about, you know, how many rent buys, how many built rents and stuff. And, you know, each of the opposition and government lob competing uh, statistics at, at each other, it makes it um, very confusing. But the ultimate metric is, I mean, there are people out there who cannot afford to buy houses, who cannot afford to rent houses. And then there are people who are left homeless. And this has been a situation that has persisted for almost a decade now, and there's no sign of it abating anytime soon. The only way it can be an upside for the government, Pat, is if it actually solves the problem. And, um, you know, with a slowdown on commencements because of uh, inflation in the construction industry, you know, it's not going to be solved uh, anytime uh, soon. It does show to me, or it, it, it demonstrates to me manifestly, uh, the limited power that politics has in relation to some aspects of how we order our society. But campaigners would say, Harry, and I've seen the, the commentator and campaigner Rory Hearn arguing you know, for a state-run construction agency that would directly build the houses. I mean, I've seen other questions as to whether that would actually increase capacity or would it simply mean you know the state is building houses that are currently built by the uh currently built by the by the private sector but the, the greatest enemy is is time you know we're not china we're not qatar we can't build a 200 billion euro st- stadium in record time in the desert using kind of forced labor as they did in qatar in china when they want to build a new dam they just tell everybody who lives in the valley sorry guys get out we're going to build a, a dam here and, you know, there's no uh, appeals to import planola. There's no high court challenges. Uh, there's none of all of the kind of the bureaucratic Gordian knots uh, that, that is associated with planning I- in Ireland. There was a very interesting series of presentations uh, to uh, the, uh, the Committee on Housing recently by local authorities. And each of them you know, signposted kind of difficulties in relation to planning, difficulties in relation to accessing labour, uh, to getting sites ready, uh, the huge difficulties in relation to freeing up vacant homes. I mean, vacant homes is thrown out there as a very handy solution. But when you actually look at the number of vacant homes that can actually be repurposed uh, to house families, the number becomes smaller. And then you have difficulties with trying to wrest ownership from somebody who doesn't want to give it up, trying to get a CPO ordered to get got through, that sometimes takes very many years. So with every potential solution in housing, you have loads and loads of hurdles to cross. There are money hurdles, there are planning hurdles, there are legal hurdles, and then there's kind of local resistance uh, hurdles uh, as well. And that's why the planning system is so glacially slow in in Ireland. And I, I, I you know, I, I think we'll be back in five years' time if we're still around uh, talking about this issue in, in almost exactly the same terms. I'm sorry about sounding so pessimistic about this, <laughs> well, but I've seen this happen well. for the past 10 years, Pat, and well, nothing that... really has moved. We will leave it there for now. My <laughs> thanks to <laughs> Harry McGee and to Jennifer Bray, to producer Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Pat Leahy, and we'll be back later in the week. Thank you. <laughs>